I've been following him for days. And I know he is here. I can see the signs. Sick people have been healed. Hungry people have been fed. The people in this town aren't so angry anymore. There is peace in the streets. And there is peace in their hearts. Because they encountered him. Because he is here. morning. It's good to see you guys. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, online and uh, also at an off-site campus and in every nook and cranny in the Long Point building. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you'll find a place uh, for a seat around a television or in the worship center or, or in the warehouse. We're glad that all of you are here today. Um, we, uh, how many of you are glad that you live in the South? Anybody? Glad you live in the South? Okay, let me phrase it like this. How many of you, uh, after looking at the weather the last two weeks, are glad that you moved down if you moved down from the north, north, northeast? I remember people have asked me a lot of times, why did you move from Illinois to Charleston? I said, well, we put a snow shovel on top of our car, and we just kept driving south till somebody didn't know what it was. We said, that's where we want to plant a church. Uh, most of you are aware that w- one of our values is church planting, that we plant churches. We've planted nearly 500 you know, it's only going to be a couple more weeks, and I won't be able to say nearly 500. We're going to be at 500. Uh, but uh, we're planning another life-giving church this week uh, in uh, the, the Cathedral Church in Flint, Michigan. And uh, so if you know anybody in that area uh, that needs a, a church, uh, you might want to refer them to that. And also uh, in the Northeast, this is kind of a need that we have. Usually I don't, here, here's what happens is uh, when you give the offering boxes online or text or whatever you do, a portion of what you give goes to plant churches. That's just what we do. You know, we portion goes to feed the poor, plant churches. We, we have it kind of all allocated out. And uh, this week with the snowstorms in the Northeast, um, several of the churches, uh, brand new small churches, brand new churches, churches a couple of years old, um, haven't, haven't been able to have church in a couple of weeks. And here's what happens is um, they have to pay bills. They have to pay uh, families and all of this, and yet they, they have usually very little income uh, as, as a result of this snow, and then there's extra income and all that goes into that. And so you guys are so generous. I wanted to give you an opportunity to be generous. And uh, no pressure, just if, if that's your heart, if you, you, know, you go, I, I want to help, I want to be a part of that, if you would just text to give, that'd be the easiest thing to do. And there's a number, 843 410 0739. If you want to give above what you normally give, you say, you know, I've got a little extra. I really w- would love to be a part of it. <laughs> it's so incredible. I was just going to mention this. Class service, a guy says, I'm giving all my whole paycheck next week uh, toward this particular thing. I thought, this is the most generous church. It's fun to be generous. Would you agree with that? And so if, if you guys want to, yeah, I'm not telling you, you got to give your whole paycheck, all right? You know, a few people giving $10 would be a help. Whatever God says to you. And uh, we'll just be a blessing uh, to them. I want to pray for them real quick. Lord, I thank you for the new church that's starting in Flint, Michigan. We're excited for that. We pray that your kingdom would come, that it would be established, and it would uh, just flourish uh, over the years to come and impact people's lives. God, we pray today for the churches in the Northeast that 
um, that the need would be met, God, through us and other ARC churches as we just come together and, and just bless the churches uh, that are going through some hard times, uh, just to, that are recently planted because of weather. And so, God, we're, we're grateful to you, and uh, we love being at your, your church, and we love being generous. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in a series called Marked. We're going through the book of Mark, and... Uh, and uh, today we're gonna we're gonna um, we're gonna deal with the second most important question on everybody's mind uh, this week, and that's: Are we in the end times? When is Jesus coming? Now, what's the most important question? Most important question is: What color is this? What color? <laughs> Hang on. There we go. There we go. A little quicker next time. Okay. What color is that? I, I don't even want to go there. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. We all know it's gold and white, okay? And so, yeah, let's not split the church over the color of a dress. So, so we're, we're talking about the end times. I got a lot to cover. We're going to take Mark chapter 13. Normally in this series, we are not going verse by verse. This week we are. We're going to get the whole chapter. There's a lot in there. won't be like a normal message, you know. Uh, it'll be a little bit different, but... Uh, I'm, I'm excited about it, I really am. So I asked a lot of my friends, I said, okay, help me, I'm preaching through Mark, what do you know about the end times? And so one of my pastor buddies from Louisiana sent me this. He said, uh, pastor, or Reverend Boudreaux was the part-time pastor of the local Cajun Baptist Church, and uh, Pastor Thibodeau was the minister of the Covenant Church across the, the road, and they were both standing by the road, pounding a sign into the ground that read this. The end is near. Turn yourself around now before it's too late. That's as close to Cajun as I get. And so, and so a car comes buzzing by. Somebody leans out the window and says, y'all are a bunch of religious nuts. And just a couple minutes later, they hear the screech of tires and a big splash. And uh, Reverend Boudreaux turns to Thibodeau and asks, do you think maybe the sign should just say the bridge is out? <laughs> Yeah, I like that. That's good. All right. So, so how many of you, how many of you have ever gone on a road trip with kids in the car? Long road trip. What is the question? Are we there yet? Yeah, we've, I, I classified my kids. I have four kids. I classified my kids into three categories because preachers do everything by threes. Three categories. Uh, the first category are those that are preoccupied with the subject. Those kids irritate you to no end. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Put a sock in it. No, we're not there. Okay. So preoccupied. The second one are those that are oblivious. They don't even care. You know, Jessica, my second, uh, or my first daughter, she's like reading a book, doesn't care when we get there, whatever. She's just kind of in her own world. And then the third category are those that are, you have a healthy kind of anticipation toward being there. And they just kind of want to know every once in a while, are we there yet? And uh, so what Debbie's job uh, is, was on those long trips is to make preparations the closer we got. And, you know, when we'd almost be there, first thing she'd say is clean up the trash, right? Because, I mean, we've been living in the, just a few square foot. That's our bed. That's our, uh, you know, our food and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and then the second thing is uh, 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 everybody get your shoes on. 
because everybody takes their shoes off and invariably, and usually it's the, maybe the one that's oblivious to everything, we get to the restaurant, we get to the place, and there's one shoe missing. Would you agree with that? One shoe, just one. Not several shoes, one shoe. Now this shoe right here happens to be a shoe that was mine personally, so it's very cute, very valuable. And uh, there's no scuffs on the bottom, so apparently I walked late. But, uh, <laughs> but they lose a shoe, right? I mean, it'll be underneath the seat. It'll be, you know, in somebody else's purse, whatever, and, and you can't find, a, can't find a shoe, and they almost miss, you know, all the stuff, and uh, you got to get ready for arrival. Now, in Mark chapter 13, what does that mean? We'll get to it at the end. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus has one of those are we there yet conversations with the disciples, some of the disciples. Now, to get the context of Mark 13, you got to go back to Mark 12. What was he doing in Mark 12? Uh, because in the first verse of Mark 13, he says, after they left. Well, let's go back to see what he's doing. He's teaching in the temple. Now, the temple is this magnificent, magnificent piece of architecture that dominates the skyline of Jerusalem, built originally by Solomon, destroyed, rebuilt during Ezra's time, and then Herod the Great has expanded it, even though he's not a Jew, uh, but he has expanded this temple, and it's magnificent. In fact, I've got, it's, it's been destroyed, but I've got a picture of what it would have looked like. This is kind of a, uh, a replica in Jerusalem that we saw that covers acres of land. Uh, this is the Temple Mount area. This is the temple, and uh, these would be the Gentile uh, um, uh, courts out here, and in the inside are various courts where rabbis of the day would teach. They would bring their disciples in, and uh, they would argue, basically argue uh, scripture. This is kind of a close-up of that area. Jesus was probably in one of these porticos here teaching, and he had large crowds, large crowds, and they'd argue with the Pharisees, and that's where a lot of that stuff went on. And so in Mark chapter 12, he's teaching two or three little vignettes in there. Then Mark 13, he says this. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Go back to that first picture, okay? Disciples are, I mean, this thing's beautiful. So I was like, Jesus, what an incredible, what an incredible thing. Look at how magnificent it is. Now, watch what Jesus says. Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. That's massive. That would be like if Jesus was touring with a few of you, maybe in Washington, D.C., and you're in the, on the mall in Washington, you see the White House, you see the, you know, the, the House of Congress, all, all, all of these, maybe the Washington Monument. And he says, take a look at this. You think this is good looking? There's coming a day soon when there won't be one stone that will be left on another. Have you know, that's a conversation starter. And so they, they left and they went down through the, through the valley up, up in, into the, um, the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, says. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, first four disciples, asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Now, so Jesus has a conversation about the end times. We're going to go through it verse by verse. Let me tell you what I'm not going to do. We're going to take a 35,000-foot look at, at this whole thing. I'm not going to get into the granular details. I'm not going to talk about, like, red moons and vials and all the, you know, the this, this stuff in Revelations. 
But we're going we're to kind of follow Jesus' teaching, and we're going to ask ourselves, who was he talking to, first of all? What applies to the people there? What applies to us? And most importantly, are we in the end times right now? Could Jesus come anytime? Okay? So that's kind of where we're going. What does Jesus say to his disciples about the end times? Let me give you four things. Number one, he says, we aren't there yet. He says, we aren't there yet. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he and will deceive many. And when you hear, the, uh, hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. He's saying to his disciples, there are going to be many that are going to come in my name. What's that about? Israel is waiting for a Messiah, still waiting for a Messiah, okay? Je- uh, the, the Messiah is one who will come, the anointed one, the Christ. You know, it's not like Jesus Christ, first name, last name. No, Christ means anointed one, the, the Messiah. It's a title. And uh, they're looking for somebody who will liberate Israel from their issues, and there will be peace on earth, um, and the entire world will know that Israel's God is the one true God. They're waiting for that. And so crowds are following Jesus because people are saying, this might be the one, this might be the one, this might be the one. Biggest thing of every Israeli family is to, is to uh, anticipate the Messiah. And Jesus said, I am. And he confirmed that. And, uh, but, but just a few days later, a little, little while later after this verse, uh, or this passage, um, he's crucified and Jews move on to the next guy who might be the Messiah because that didn't fit into the plan. In fact, I had a conversation with an uh, Orthodox Jewish uh, rabbi when I was in Jerusalem one time and I said, uh, are you looking forward to a Messiah? He said, yes. I said, do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? And he said, not yet. <laughs> he said, no, I don't believe today because he didn't fulfill all the messianic prophecies in the way that we feel like he should, but if he comes back again and does that, I'll believe. And the Bible says that that's going to happen someday, and that's going to be a total transformation of belief. But, uh, but they're waiting, and, and Jesus says to his disciples, there are going to come several. It's going to take a while. There are going to come several in my name who are going to claim to be the Messiah. Don't let anybody, don't let anybody uh, fool you. He said there are also going to come wars. And rumors of wars. Don't get all upset about that. It's part of the process. He said there will be nations will rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. And there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. Don't, don't let it upset you. It's just the beginning. So where, where are we at today? Um, you know, a lot of people say that, that uh, things are getting worse and worse and worse. That, that uh, things are just rapidly deteriorating. And some things are, but I'll I'll be honest with you, you can make a case that things have never been better in the world than they are today. There are less less wars today than any other time in history. There are less people who die as a result of war. And and one person dying, one person related to you who serves, and I'm I'm grateful for everybody that serves today. Um, That's personal. um, But the truth is, um, compared to... Like World War One, where millions died in wars. World War Two, uh, the Civil War here, uh, six million Jews uh, dying in World War Two. Uh, you go back into the Middle Ages wars. Things are better today. And I think one of the reasons things are better is because of the church and the rise of the church and living out the kingdom of of God. Now that being said, 
there are wars, and we're focused on some of them right now very closely. And while, while there are less wars, less people dying as a result of wars, uh, there's never been a more dangerous time in the history of man. Because with terrorism, uh, one, one terrorist, one group of terrorists getting a nuclear bomb, and it changes the story tomorrow, just like this. Or one terrorist uh, in a cyber attack uh, could upset our economy uh, just in incredible ways. And so we could sit, sit here today and say, things are great. And tomorrow, things could be devastating. If you lived, you know, 9-11 changed everything for us. And that was just a, a small thing compared with what could happen with, with some of the major things that are out there. And so, and so Jesus would say to us, it's a, part of the, it's a part of the process. Just be aware. But he said to his disciples, uh, we're not there yet. The second thing he says is that there are some rough times ahead of you. There are some rough times ahead of you. In uh, verse 9, he said, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. <laughs> About that time, Matthew, Mark, and Peter and Andrew are going, uh, or not Matthew, Mark, but the disciples that were with him. Um, you know who they were. I mentioned them earlier. But anyway, <laughs> they're going, why did we ask this question again? You know, Jesus says, you're going to be flogged. You're going to be run out of synagogues. You're going to be flogged. You're going to be stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Now, who's he talking to? Is he talking to you? No. He's talking to a specific group of people who he says, you're in for a hard time because there's going to come persecution, which is going to scatter you out everywhere, and you're going to sometimes take a whipping uh, for what you believe. And then he goes on and he says, there's a reason for it. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. He says, you're going to be persecuted so that the gospel can be preached to all nations. Elsewise, it's going to stay right here. You're going to go out to all nations and the gospel will be preached. And when it does, then the end will come. Okay. Now, while he's speaking specifically to a group of people, let me make an application to this group of people. And here it is. Two truths that you need to keep in mind, two parallel truths. The first one is that God loves you and is for you. Do you believe that? God loves you. That's what we preach that all the time. If there's not, if there's a message from Seacoast is that God loves you and he's for you. Jesus said, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you have another thought other than God loving you, then it's not God that's giving you that thought. God loves you. There's nothing you can do to get out of the love of God. Um, and he's for you. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, uh, he says, if God is for you, who can be against you? I believe that. Now, take that thought. Here's a parallel thought. God is more concerned for his kingdom than he is for your current comfort, okay? God loves you, but God is more concerned in this time. There will come a time when he'll be totally focused on your comfort. That's called heaven. Uh, Mount Perfect is nice, but it's not heaven, okay? We're not quite there yet. In this season, God honestly is more concerned for those who will be than those who already are. There are all kinds of... Par uh, parables that Jesus talks about, that he leaves the 99, goes after the one. And so at times, God, your, your discomfort 
is the will of God because he's more concerned about his kingdom than he is for your current comfort, okay? And, and that's what he's saying to the disciples, basically. You're going to take an occasional whipping uh, so that the gospel can be heard everywhere. You're going to get your reward, but there may be small and momentary setbacks so others can hear. Now, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, what led to the rapid growth of the church? Because shortly after this, in the first, second, third century, the church exploded. Right here, we've just got a few guys, and it explodes until, until finally in Rome, it becomes the, 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 the state religion, which some people will say wasn't a good thing, but it was huge. You'd have cities with churches of 100,000 or more. What happened? What, was the, what stimulated that? If you study church history, you know that there are basically three things. The first thing was the Christian's response to orphans in the day. In, uh, in, in Roman practice, um, there was something called exposing, which meant if you had a child and you didn't want to take care of that child, you could expose them, put them uh, in the city center, expose them to weather, to violence, whatever. Maybe the child was a, was a female and they were very much devalued. Maybe the child was, had challenges mentally or physically. The parents could take them. You say, how could a parent do that? You know, when you're in a culture that just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time erodes, which I think we're in a culture that is eroding a little bit at a time. That's why the church is necessary. But when you get in that, you can find yourself making choices that you would other normally, normally make. But here's the point. What, what the Christians would do is that they would jump in and they would take care of the orphans because of what Jesus taught about orphans and family and and, and so people around would go, wow, this is different. Maybe we don't agree with them, but they were respected for that. Interestingly enough, I spoke recently at an event here in Charleston, really had a good time doing it. It was a secular event. And they introduced me as a pastor at Seacoast, which is a church committed to attacking the orphan care or the, the foster care problem in Charleston and in South Carolina because they'd read that in the newspaper. And I felt kind of good about that. I thought, that's kind of cool. And I had people come up to me after I spoke that said, that is great what your church is doing in that area. In fact, today the Greenville campus are, are initiating um, uh, something that will attack the, the, the foster care issue in Greenville, South Carolina. We're proud of you guys. We're excited about what you're doing. And that was something that drew people to Jesus. Second thing was the Christian response to natural disasters and disease. They would have something like Ebola that type of thing break out. And back in, in those days, in the early centuries, uh, people would leave the cities because, you know, it would just wipe out whole cities. Christians would stay and they would take care of those who were there. In fact, Christians built the first hospitals. Uh, there were first doctors, nurses that would stay uh, in center city and people would go, there's something different about these people. And that's one of the reasons that we do things like the Dream Center uh, clinic and, and that we uh, help open uh, clinics with some of our partners in various parts of the world because we want to carry on. And if you're in the medical field, uh, you're carrying on the steps of Jesus in, in healing. And, and so the church would do that and people would go, okay, all right, these, these, maybe Jesus is who he said he was. And then the third one was the martyrdom of the saints. When people like Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was stoned, uh, or they lost their heads. You know, uh, chopping uh, Christians' heads off didn't just start, um, you know, with ISIS. 
There's been persecution all through the years. And when the martyrs would stand strong and they would, they would as Stephen did, they, they would uh, glorify God, uh, even in their dying, people would come uh, to know Jesus. And, and today it's a horrible thing as we read the stories of what's, what's going on. But uh, I, I read the story recently of the 21 Egyptians and the impact that that is having in Egypt is astounding. It's absolutely astounding. Now, God may not call you to martyrdom, but it is possible that whatever discomfort you're in is for his glory so that the gospel can be preached. It may be, you know, you're, you, you feel like you're in a lousy job. God, I'd like to have a new job. Why don't you answer my prayers or my roommate's a jerk or whatever it happens to be. You know, rather than looking at it like that, maybe if you would look at it from an eternal perspective and say, you know, God is for me and he loves me, but he also is more concerned for his kingdom than he is for my comfort. It may be that what I'm involved in right now, if I'll handle it properly, will be for the spreading of the gospel and the good news. That makes sense. And so there's always a purpose for our problems. Number three, Jesus says, we aren't there yet. We're going to have some trouble soon. Number three, he said there are some really bad times coming for everybody on the horizon. Or in the words of the great theologian John Fogarty, uh, there's a bad moon on the rise. Okay, that's for those of you who liked 70s music when it was real, good, good music. He says, there's a really bad time coming. It's a tribulation that's going to impact everybody. It's going to be so bad, he says in the next few verses, <coughs> that when you see signs of it coming, you need to get out of town. Hopefully you won't be pregnant at the time. Hopefully it won't be winter months when it's hard to travel. Hopefully it won't happen on a Sabbath uh, so that there are some restrictions on travel. He says, you need to get out of town. And here's what he says about it. He says, uh, here's the sign. He says, uh, I can't find the sign. The next verse, verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, say that together, the abomination that causes desolation. I'm going to give you another chance at that. The abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Duh, I don't understand. Okay, we'll help you. Then let those who are in Jerusalem flee into the mountains. So what's he talking about? He's quoting from Daniel. Daniel is a prophecy. Listen, in prophecy, in prophecy, there are a lot of, a lot of theologians that believe that there, uh, much prophecy has double fulfillment. In other words, there is a prophecy about an individual group of people that happens to them, but there is also a fulfillment for another group of people later. It's called double fulfillment. And so Jesus is talking about a prophecy from Daniel that the desolation or the, the abomination that causes desolation will be standing where it does not belong. Uh, many people, uh, Jewish rabbis at the time, believed that he was referring, or not he, but Daniel was referring to a time about 160 B.C., uh, before Jesus was born, uh, when a Greek leader desecrated the temple by putting a statue of Zeus in the temple and uh, commanded people to worship that statue. They, they said that was the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. But Jesus is talking about something in the future. And uh, we believe, and a lot of theologians believe, that he was talking about two things. Now, the disciples there understood one. We later understand a little bit more about both. The first one was uh, actually fulfilled about 40 years after Jesus made this statement. 
in uh, A.D. 66, um, a group of zealots uh, tried to overthrow the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. Uh, zealots, you remember Judas, the disciple of Jesus was a zealot, and he came, and he, one of the reasons he followed Jesus, he saw that here's a guy who's going to be the Messiah who's going to militarily overthrow everything. I want to get, get involved. And when he didn't, he betrayed Jesus. Well, his party, the Zealots, tried to overthrow Rome in A.D. 66. And Rome said, we're going to put this down where it will never happen again. And so they sent in troops, and they circled Jerusalem. And they had a siege there for about three years where you couldn't get food, you couldn't get water. It was awful. And then when finally they breached the walls, they destroyed the entire city destroyed the temple where there was not one stone left on another stone. In fact, I've got a picture of that from Israel when I went a couple of years ago. This is the western wall, which is the foundation of the temple. Temple's up here. These are stones from the old temple. That's all that's left, which fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus said. Remember when they said, oh, what a beautiful building, and he said not one stone will be left on another. That happened in AD 70. They destroyed the entire city. Josephus, who was a historian uh, at the time who was there, said that as many as 1.1 million Jews were, were, were killed in that siege. Now, we think that Josephus exaggerated a little bit because uh, I'm not sure that 1.1 million people lived in Jerusalem. But the point is, lots of people lost their life. It was a terrible, terrible time. And it fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus gave that this... That, that Rome would be in the temple and destroy, or that the, we interpret it as Rome, that would destroy the temple. Well, here's what's interesting is that uh, Christians at the time had the book of Mark. You remember the first week of the book of Mark we talked about when it was written? It was written probably in about 55, 57 A.D. So the people in Jerusalem who were Christians had this book. They had this prophecy by Jesus. And when they saw this starting to happen, they left and almost no Christians died in that whole process, which is just an incredible thing. Now, that's the one fulfillment of it. The second fulfillment of what Jesus said um, a lot of people believe that when he talks about the abomination that causes desolation, he's also referring to a future end times antichrist figure who signs a seven-year peace treaty with, with Israel, and that's found in Daniel. Again, um, there's a terrible tribulation that follows. Jerusalem is destroyed, and then, and then um, a lot of people believe that Jesus will return physically to the earth um, uh, at the end of the tribulation, uh, at the end of seven years to save the day and restore peace and usher in the end times. And that's, that's a time when, when the kingdom of, of God uh, will, will reign. Uh, tying in ISIS with all of this, why are they doing what they're doing? I can't spend a lot of time talking about it. There's a great article, and I've got a URL website to it in your outline sheet. Here's a better one, though. I, I wish I would have thought of this before the outline sheet came out. Seacoast.org front slash end times. You can get to it very, very easily there. And uh, he talks about in the article, it's excellent. You need to read it if you want to understand ISIS. One of the major questions that the guy that wrote the article addresses is, why is ISIS picking fights with everybody? I mean, they're, they're picking fights with Americans and Jews. We understand that. But now he's drawing in Jordanians with the, uh, the pilot that was burned alive. With He's drawing in Egyptians, um, fighting against everybody. In fact, there's a coalition of at least 60 nations right now that are opposed to him. And the question is, uh, why is he doing that? They, certainly they think, uh, they can't think that they'll win that war. And what's interesting is they don't think they'll win that war. 
In fact, they don't think they're trying to win a war. They think they're trying to usher in the end times uh, from an Islamic point of view. I would recommend you read the article. It will enlighten you. Now, the question is, what should we do to combat that? That's what we pay Senator Tim Scott and all of the people in Washington to figure out. And uh, I have no idea. Okay, and neither do you. So don't think you do. All right, anyway, so Jesus says we aren't there yet. Tough times are ahead for you. Why did I mention Tim Scott? Because he's a member of this church. And uh, I'm not trying to be political. Okay, so save your uh, uh, whatever, your emails. Bad times for everybody. (laughs) Tribulation. Jesus says just after this terrible tribulation, number four, and this is the part I like of this message. He said, keep your head up because I'm coming in the clouds. Keep your head up. I'm going to save the day. Look at what he says. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Let me give you a timeline. Just This might be an easy way, easier way of explaining this, okay? End times timeline. First, Antichrist shows up, abomination that causes desolation. Who's the Antichrist? People have been trying to figure this one out for a long time. Uh, for a long time, the Protestants said it was the Catholics. The Catholics were the great harlot church of revelations, and the, the uh, Antichrist would be one of the popes, okay? The Catholic church thought it was Martin Luther. When he came, he was the Antichrist. Uh, a lot of people thought it was Hitler, okay? Um, when I was growing up, a lot of people thought it was Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, because of the peace thing that he did with Israel and, and Egypt, um, these days, a lot of people think it's Bill Belichick, and I think they may be right. Um, or it could be Miley Cyrus. I, I, I don't know. Okay, I'm not, I, I can't figure that stuff out. Okay, second thing that happens is this, is that there's a great tribulation. Okay, Antichrist, great tribulation, terrible. And then the third thing is uh, uh, Jesus appears in the sky, save the day. Fourth thing is that there, believers are resurrected. Okay, those that are alive are uh, 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 raptured to be with him, and, uh, the, and, and believers who died before are resurrected. They get their resurrected bodies. Now, um, there are different beliefs on when this will happen. If the, some people will say that's not the exact timeline. I had to put it somewhere, so I put it there. A lot of people think that this happens before the Great Tribulation. We call that a pre-trib rapture, okay, that before things get really bad, Christians get raptured out. And there's, there, there's some evidence to, to that. Um, the first four chapters of Revelations talks about the church. The rest of Revelations, the church is never mentioned, and it talks about this great tribulation. Uh, also, uh, just from the story of Jesus talking about in, that the temple would be destroyed, and we know that Christians fled before all that craziness happened. So it's very possible, pre-tribulation. Some people believe in a mid-tribulation, that Christians stay halfway through the tribulation, then when it gets really bad, they're lifted out. And other Christians believe post-tribulation, that after the tribulation, Jesus appears and they're resurrected. You say, well, pastor, what do you believe? Listen carefully. I believe in pan-tribulation. It's all going to pan out somehow. I don't know, but it's going to pan out, okay? And I got about as much evidence for mine as what anybody else does. Okay, so let's go on to the next one. Jesus establishes kingdom rule. Okay, after he comes, that's when you read scriptures like the lamb will lay down with the lion and peace will be everywhere. Great time. And then, um, and then the next one is there will be a last judgment. More sobering. Uh, everybody will be judged. Nobody gets away with anything. 
Everybody will be judged. And uh, Christians will be judged for uh, their, uh, and, and rewarded for their works, okay? And then uh, the last thing is heaven comes to earth. Uh, the new, new heaven and earth uh, uh, are, are created and comes to earth and we live forever uh, in that. So when does that happen? Are we there yet? Look at Mark 13, 32, next verse. But about that day or hour, nobody knows. I don't care what they say. I've heard people say, well, you don't know the day and the hour, but you can know the, the month and the year. Uh, no, not so much. Nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun. He didn't even know. He had limited his knowledge in that. He said, but the Father above. That's the only one that knows. So Jesus is saying this as we close the chapter. Wrong question, are we there yet? Right question, am I ready when it happens? Look what he says. Be on guard. Be alert. Do not know. You do not know when that time will come. He says, but be ready. It's going to be like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everybody, watch, watch. So how does it apply to you? Three quick things. Five minutes. What's your attitude toward the end times? What's your attitude toward the end times? Let's go back to my kids. Some, some of my kids, are we there yet, had a preoccupation that drove everybody crazy. And some of you <laughs> have a preoccupation with it. All you want to talk about is end time stuff. You're driving your friends crazy, okay? I'm just telling you that. So just kind of balance that just a little bit. Because, listen, here's what I know we're supposed to do is occupy till he comes. We're supposed to be Jesus until he comes. And so, and so spend as much time as you can on being the hands and feet of Jesus, and he'll take care of the date. Some of us have no interest at all, and, and we live as if Jesus isn't coming, okay? We're practical atheists, really. Even though we call ourselves believers, we live as if Jesus isn't coming. And some of us have a healthy anticipation for that day. So what's your attitude? Where are you at? Second thing I would ask is, what's left to be accomplished? Could Jesus come today? Could Jesus come before the end of this day? I don't know. Let's look at what's left to be accomplished of what Jesus said. Jesus said, first of all, Jerusalem would be destroyed. Check. That happened. Second thing, that there would be a great tribulation. Um, some people would say that's in the future. Some people would say we're already in that. You say, well, that's not much tribulation. I'd ask the people, Christians around the world who are being persecuted in, in Africa, uh, in the Middle East, and they might tell you something different, okay? So, possible. Now, let's go to the next one. The gospel will be preached to the whole earth. Maybe that's what's holding Jesus back. Here's what's interesting about that. Is in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23, take a look at what Paul says. He says, if you continue in your faith established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and watch this, and that has been proclaimed, has been, that has been proclaimed to every creature under the earth and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. 
you need to understand this, that Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, all of whom wrote their books after the fall of Jerusalem and saw that Jesus' prophecy had come true in that regard and were under tremendous persecution, which they thought might very well be the end times tribulation, every one of them thought that Jesus was coming at any moment. And that's what drove the way that they lived. That's what drove how they spent their money. That's what drove the missionary trips of Paul. And he says here confidently, the gospel has been preached to all nations. And that's why he's telling them, you got to live differently. You've got to be serious about what you're doing. Now, we know that Jesus didn't come in their lifetime. Then you go to the early centuries, and, and they thought, Jesus is coming at any point. And they were missionary heavy. What about today? You know, the further away we get from the prophecy, sometimes the more lackadaisical we live our lives. We say, and on the other hand, we say, well, we've got to wait, 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 wait until the gospel's preached to every nation. I think it's important that the gospel be preached. I'm on, a, I'm on John Maxwell's board uh, for Equip, and we had a meeting just the other day, and one of our goals is to share the gospel in every, every nation, and we're down to three left. And they may have been shared while we're preaching today. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying Jesus could come at any time. I believe that. And I believe if we had that mentality, not just, you know, just waiting for the rapture, but with this mentality that says, Jesus could come at any point. I'm going to be ready. That's the last question on the outline sheet. Are you ready? I'm going to be ready. I'm going to live my life in such a way that he could come at any time. I'm going to resource, I'm going to leverage my resources at any time so, so, that, so that the gospel will be preached. I'm going to see my circumstances at any moment, not in light of my comfort, but that I may be temporarily discomforted so that the gospel can be preached everywhere. When we are gospel-centered and gospel-focused, then we're living right in the will of God. Do you have your shoes on? Are you ready? Because I think the trip's about over. And here's what I'd like you to do. If Jesus tarries and you get up tomorrow or the next day or the day after that, and by the way, don't go build a bunker somewhere. Try to win people to Jesus, okay? That's what we're kind of here for, all right? Here's what I know is at the end of the story, he comes back and everything's going to be okay. Whatever crisis you're facing right now, it might be physical, it might be financial, it might be, you may have just lost a loved one and we grieve with you. But I know it's just temporary. Jesus wins. The end of the book has been written. He prophesied, he said, I'm coming and he's coming again. And tomorrow when you go to put your clothes on or the next day, when the last thing that you put on is your shoes, I want you to think about this message. And as you put on your shoes, I want you to ask yourself, am I ready? Am I ready? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for this wonderful group of people. I thank you for your word. And uh, we ask that, um, that your kingdom would come in our hearts and that your will would be done among us here today as we search ourselves and ask, what are you saying to us? And how are we going to respond to you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.